Have you ever noticed that all the different things that we criticize God about, about are the exact things that we as people do? For example, have you ever heard this? Oh, God is so judgmental. How can God be so judgmental? Okay, well, let's set aside the fact that you're judging God for judging. Uh, the reality is that's all we do as humans is we judge. We eat, we breathe, we drink, and we judge. We live, we judge every person, place, and thing we come into contact with. The number one show on television today is about judging, and it has four judges who we judge while they judge. We live in the Dr. Seuss world of judgment. We judge how people drive, how they dress, how they, how they drive, how they dress, how they talk, how they walk, what they do, what they don't, what they will and what they won't, what they think, how they act, what they say and what they do, what they wear on their bodies from their heads down to their shoes. Oh, and we do not like green eggs and ham. We judge it, judge it, Sam I am. How about this one? How can a loving God not allow everyone into heaven? This from a society that we don't even want to let people into our homes and apartments temporarily. A doorbell rings in America, and it's like DEFCON 1 has gone off. <laughs> you know, we're like diving behind couches, hiding behind walls, hoping and praying it's just Amazon, uh, and that it's not the neighbors, or even worse, family, right? How about this? Oh, the Bible is just full of rights and wrongs. And that's just wrong. That's not right. If you say something right, that something's right, then you're wrong. And if you say something's wrong, then you're still wrong for being wrong. You know, here's what I think the truth is. I don't think we actually have a problem with the concept of God. I don't think even atheists have a problem with the concept of God. Here's what we have a problem with, that it's not us. We're just mad that before the universe began, there was a vote for God, and we didn't even get a single vote. Not even our moms voted for us. Before the universe began, there was a vote. It was a three-way tie between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and they said, let's do this thing together. And when they high-fived on it, we call that the Big Bang. That's how it happened. That's how it went down. You know, perhaps in all of Christianity, there's no greater area of question or comment than the cross. Uh, I hear people say, how can a loving God allow his only son to die on a cross? Why would someone need to die so that someone else could live? You know, Paul actually agreed. Paul said this about the cross, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, so before we look at, at uh, Jesus' life and the two reasons that I think that he came to live uh, among us, I want to give some context to, this, to the circumstances he came in. So I want to do a quick two-minute summary of the entire Old Testament. Sound good? Okay. So the first thing you have to understand about the Old Testament is that even though it's a collection of stories of individuals, at its essence, it is the story of God and his people. The group that became known as the nation of Israel or uh, the Jewish nation. The thing you also have to understand is that God and his people are stuck in this infinite loop that we see all throughout the Old Testament. 
It starts with God and man in relationship. God and man as it's meant to be. Before the universe began, God existed in love relationship. And so when he created man in his image, that image was to be love and relationship. When God and man are in relationship with each other, it leads to blessing and abundance. This is the life we are meant to live. Now, unfortunately, the problem with blessing and abundance is it inevitably leads us to ourselves. We stop looking outward and upward. We start looking inward. We start taking the good things. We turn them into God things. We take the blessings and we stop focusing on the blesser. What that happens is that leads to self-focus and to disobedience as we focus inward. That, that self-focus, that disobedience inevitably leads us to captivity and absolute separation. Once we've gotten tired of that captivity, we can't take it anymore, we cry out to God who in his grace and in his mercy restores relationship. And we turn to God, and he restores us, and he hears us. That relationship leads to abundance. That abundance leads to selfishness, and then to captivity, and then to repentance. And the entire Old Testament, wherever you look, you find God and his people somewhere in there, stuck in this trap. So Jesus comes. It's during a period of captivity. This time, it's the Romans. And he starts to perform some miracles, and he starts to teach. He starts to get to what the Bible refers to as street cred, okay? So he's got some street cred. He decides to go back to his hometown of Nazareth. And so this, the it, Sabbath comes. All the Jews go to the synagogue, and they're all eyes are on Jesus. What is this guy going to do next? He goes to the scrolls, and he pulls out a passage from Isaiah, and it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. He then goes on to say, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the first historically recorded case of a mic drop moment. Drop the mic, right? Now, he went on to keep speaking, say, so he must have had to pick it back up. But why is this such a big deal? It's because any Jew who heard this would have instantly known that this was a prophecy of the Messiah, the one who would come and lead the people out of captivity, not one more time, but one last time. The Messiah was going to end this cycle and restore relationship between God and man forever. So the reality is, today, we have two choices. We have freedom, and we have captivity. Now, that might sound like an easy question. What do you want? Do you want to be free, or do you want to be captive? But I'm going to try to make the case that even though we say we want freedom, too often we actually choose captivity. Now, there's some confusion in the Bible because there's actually two different kinds of freedom, and we confuse these two in the Bible. The first is what I call believer's freedom, and it's the freedom that we experience when we are free from the wages of sin. It occurs in an instant, the moment that we accept it. 
We can't earn our salvation any more than the prisoner can open the cell door. We are trapped. We're like the prisoners on the Pirates of the Caribbean ship. We are locked in, and we don't have the key. And there's nothing that we can do about it. You see, in the garden, at the very beginning, man took it upon himself to decide what is good and what is evil. And in doing so, he took over the role of God as both creator and as judge. We said, God, we will create, and we will decide what is good and evil. We will judge everything. We will decide who's in and out. We will decide what is right and what is wrong. We became God, or at least we thought we could become God, right? So whenever relationship is broken, whenever on earth or with God, whenever relationship is broken, you have to have two things to fix it. If you don't have these two elements, you can't fix a broken relationship. The first is responsibility. We have to, the party that is in the wrong has to take responsibility for their actions. Sometimes we call this apologizing. Sometimes we call this confession. The second thing is that the person that is wronged has to offer grace, okay? And grace, uh, we sometimes call it forgiveness. Now, on the earth, if both parties have been in the wrong, and that's usually the case, even to a small degree, then each side has to accept responsibility for their part, and then the other side has to offer grace. If you have responsibility taken, but you have no grace offered, you have no restored relationship. By the same token, if you offer grace, but there's no responsibility, you don't have relationship either. So how do you experience believer's freedom? We take responsibility by acknowledging and embracing our sin. Some of you are like, sweet, I am really good at that. I can embrace sin. I am really good at that. I know I am. Um, But why is that? It's because freedom, here's the big point, freedom is inextricably connected with truth. You can't have freedom if you don't have truth. John says it this way in uh, 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make, him so, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. You know, it's interesting, uh, looking at the progression of Paul and how he viewed himself. Paul wrote a number of letters during his life. They became books of the Bible. One of the earliest ones he wrote was the book of, that became known as 1 Corinthians. And in there, Paul referred to himself as the least of all the apostles, So what he said was, look, out of all the apostles, I'm the very least of them. A couple of years later, he wrote Ephesians, and in there he referred to himself as the least of all the saints. So what's he saying? Out of all of the Christians who who live today, I am the very least of them. A couple of years later, he wrote 1 Timothy, a letter to Timothy, and in there he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Now, is that growing in maturity in Christ to you, going from thinking you're the least of the apostles to the least of all of God's people? 
to the chief of all sinners. What happened to Paul? Did the wheels come off in his maturity? I, I don't think so. I think he actually grew in the height and the depth and the wet, width and the breadth of God's love. But in doing so, he experienced the truth of who he is and he experienced the truth of who God is and that brought him freedom. Now part of that means that as a Christian, when we realize the level of our selfishness and our brokenness and our need for redemption, that's actually a sign that we are maturing and growing closer to God. Instead of beating ourselves up, we should recognize this is God leading us in truth, and truth brings freedom. John 1, 12 and 13 says this, to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, some people will say, well, that just is too easy. That's just too easy. All you have to do is say that you're sorry, and bam, you and the God of the universe are good. Here's my question. Too easy for who? Uh, imagine sitting down with God and Jesus before the beginning of the universe, and God sits down, and he says to you, okay, look, you are going to live a selfish life. You are going to pick yourself all of that selfishness and heartache is going to bring a path of destruction. And because I am just, I have got to deal with that because it's going to break our relationship. Jesus, you are going to live a perfect life. You are going to serve others. You're going to love and you're going to give. But because you do that, you're going to ruffle some feathers. You're going to get some people upset. You're going to call out their hypocrisy. As a result, they're going to lie about you. They're going to ultimately uh, put you up for trial where they'll beat you. They'll scourge you. They'll hang you to a cross where you will ultimately die of asphyxiation. At that moment, are you really going to raise your hand and say, well, God, that just sounds too easy. That's just, that sounds too easy. Of course not. So what is the cross. The cross is the guarantee that sadness, despair, and death will not have the final word. I like to think of the cross as an intersection, the vertical piece that goes up and down. That represents the holiness of God that goes up forever. It is the justice of God that comes down to right wrongs. The horizontal piece is the love of God and his desire for relationship that goes from east to west. The epicenter of God's holiness, his justice, his love, and his grace is found right there in the middle at the cross. That's where all of those things intersect. At the end of uh, Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie, uh, but Samwise Ganges, he says this to Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? The cross is the guarantee that everything sad is going to come untrue. Paul said it this way, Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the 1970s, there was a television show called The Liars Club. And on The Liars Club, you would have a panel of celebrities, and they'd be given this gizmo or gadget. And each of them would tell you alternating different stories about what, about what this gadget was, what this device was used for. And all of the celebrities were lying except for one. And then the contestants took their money, and they wagered on who they thought was telling the truth. Here's our truth. We live the Liars Club game of life every single day. The world is constantly telling us alternating, shifting stories of who we are and where we came from and why we're here. Now that said, every single story you hear falls into one of two camps and they both have to do with the cross. Here's the first camp. You're too good for it. The world is judged on a pass-fail basis and you're passing a loving God would never separate you from his love. You've done many good things. There are lots of different paths to God. Sure, Jesus was a great teacher, but when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, he didn't really mean it. It's not what he meant. Now, if you fall into this camp, here is what you're saying. Jesus, you aren't necessary. Is that really what you want to say to God? Jesus, your son, his death on the cross, it wasn't necessary. Now, here's the other camp of stories that you'll hear. You're too bad for it. You've done too many terrible things. You've broken too many rules. You've hurt too many people. You've left a path of destruction that no just God could ever overlook. If you fall into that camp, here is what you're saying. Jesus, you aren't good enough. Do you really want to say that to God? Do you really want to go to the God of the universe and say, Jesus, your son, he's not good enough. Now, fortunately, in the Liars Club game of life, there is a third celebrity. His name is God, and he has an entirely different message. Here's his message. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. You are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. I made you to have relationship with you. To have relationship, you had to have a choice. You may think that you are broken. I am here to tell you that you are beautiful. Come to me, come to the cross, and I will show you who you are and why you were made. Now, the reality is we have a choice in life. We can choose to believe the alternating, shifting stories that the world wants to tell us that we're too good for the cross or we're too bad for the cross. The world doesn't care how you get it wrong. Or you can choose to believe Jesus. Now, um, so the world was destroyed by the misdirection, the lie, and the death found at the cross at the garden. 
The world was redeemed by the way, the truth, and the life found at the cross. So, if we have this opportunity for instantaneous freedom, why don't so many of us feel free? Believer's freedom may unlock the cell, but it doesn't walk us out. That takes a second kind of freedom. Jesus alludes to it in John 10.10. Derek mentioned this last week when he said this, I came that they might have life. That is believer's freedom, and it happens in a moment, from death to life, and that they might have it abundantly. That is follower's freedom. Believer's freedom is when we pass from death to life. Follower's freedom is the freedom that we experience when we become free from ourselves and when we walk out of the cell that is ourselves. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So what is it that entangles? It's ourselves. And what do we need to run to? It's the cross. A couple of years ago, I went on a um, trip with my two oldest kids to San Francisco, and they were sleeping in, so I decided to, to get a workout in. So uh, I like to exercise the way God intended, which is on a treadmill watching television. Um, so I go down to the workout uh, spot, and I get on the treadmill, and I get it going, and I go to plug in my headphones, and the audio jack wouldn't work. And I thought, there is no way I can be alone with my thoughts for a half hour. Uh, so... I go to the treadmill next to it, plug in, it's working, so I get my run in. Well, at the end of the run, I, um, I realized I had left my key back on the first treadmill, so I stepped over to get it. And when I did, I instantly realized that I had actually left that treadmill on. Now, when you step sideways on a treadmill that's going seven miles an hour, two things happen in rapid succession. The first is you go from a position that is perpendicular to the earth to one that is ver to horizontal or parallel to the earth very, very quickly. The second is that when you land on the treadmill, you go from a stationary position to a moving position very, very quickly. It was a very shocking turn of events. So why do I mention that? I think the key mistake that too many of us uh, as Christians, or those who call ourselves Christians make, is this. We think that the Christian walk is a walk from unrighteousness to righteousness, when really it is a walk from ourselves to Jesus, and it is a walk on a treadmill. While we exist on this earth, the natural gravitational pull of our souls is inward. When we get to heaven, what is heaven? It is knowing God and living in his presence. When we do that, the natural gravitational pull of our souls will finally be realigned back to where it was meant to be, which is to God. But on this earth, we have to constantly fight that gravitational pull, and it's a walk on a treadmill. So here's the paradox. If we seek freedom on our own, we actually become slaves to ourselves, and the result is pride, which leads to delusion, or it's fear, 
or it's guilt or it's shame. If, however, we submit ourselves to God, we actually become free. Romans 6, 20 and 22 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in re- Uh, You were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then in deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome of which is eternal life. So what are the things that keep us from followers' freedom? In, uh, in Matthew 13, Jesus shares a parable of, of seeds being scattered about. And he, in there, one of the things he refers to are believers who aren't experiencing freedom. He, t- he says it this way, Other seed fell among thorns, which grew, which grew up and choked the plants. Jesus explains what he means by this in verse 22 when he says this, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So what are the worries of this life? In Luke 10, Jesus and his disciples stop by the house of Mary and Martha. Mary sits down at the feet of Jesus to listen to everything that he has to say, while Martha is frantically running around the house trying to take care of all the different things that need to be done. Exasperated, finally, Martha comes to to Jesus and basically tells on Mary. Has anybody ever done that? You tell on God, you tell someone on God, hey, God, you see what this guy's doing? Um, Like he's not noticing. Uh, And this is Jesus' response. Martha, Martha, the Lord replied, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken from her. So what are the worries of this life? They are all the things that we judge in others or that we judge in ourselves. They are any person or anything on this planet that makes us feel better or worse about ourselves. There's something that, on this planet that makes you feel better about yourself, That's a worry of the world, because you can lose it. If there's something that makes you feel worse about yourself, that's a worry of the world, because it's dragging you down. God is captivating. Idols lead to captivity. And you have to choose, do I want to be in captivity, or do I want to be captivated? The second thing is the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, we talk about money here from time to time at K2. Sometimes people say that we talk about it too much, judgment. Sometimes people say that we don't talk about it enough, judgment. But why do we talk about it at all? This is church, for heaven's sake. Why in the world are we talking about money? Because Jesus talked about money. 16 of the 38 parables he shared were about money and possessions. One out of every 10 Verses in the Gospels is about money and possessions. The Bible talks about prayer 500 times. It talks about faith a little less than 500 times. It talks about money 2,000 times 
in the Bible. Um, so why is wealth deceitful? See, a bad lie is something that no one would ever believe. You don't believe a bad lie. A good lie is a lie that's somewhat true, right? Well, I could see that. The uh, study by Human uh, Behavior Magazine, published earlier this year, found that there's actually a positive correlation between the amount of money that a family makes and their relative level of perceived happiness. So if you make $30,000 a year, you suddenly make $40,000 a year, you actually are a little bit happier. And that continues to go up. What's interesting, though, is at least in America, and they found this throughout the world, but in America, at about $95,000 with a family, happiness starts to go down. And you start to become less happy. So the researchers wanted to know why, and they had two reasons that they, that they had. The first was the amount of extra time and effort and worry associated with earning that extra money. But the second was this, that people switched from going from what they needed to what they wanted. And when you go from what you need to what you want, it's actually insatiable. You can't ever get there. Needs are about satisfying. Wants can never be satisfied. So how do we experience freedom? We accept the word of God and we do what it says. Matthew 13, 23 says this, but the seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. This is why, as a church, we so strongly emphasize reading God's word and doing what the Bible says to do. You can't live God's word if you don't know God's word. And this is why we talk about money, because it's deceitful, and it seeks to replace the role of God, which is to be your encourager, your comforter, and your rock. And here's the truth. If we can't give away 10% of our wealth, how in the world can we get free from 100% of it? How can we say, God, I am free from all of this, but I can't give any of it away? I'm going to invite the band to come up. And um, as they do that, I want to um, ask you guys two questions today. Here's the first question. Are you free? Are you free from your pride from your guilt, from your shame, from your fears? If not, the cross is here for you. Here's the second question. Are you free? Are you free from the worries of this world? Are you free from the deceitfulness of wealth? If not, the cross is here for you. Don't Try to go from unrighteousness to righteousness. Jesus says that's just going from, from unrighteousness to the law. Instead, come to me. Today, we are uh, going to take the Lord's Supper. This is an opportunity for you to partake of the bread and the wine that Jesus shared with his disciples the night before he went to the cross. When you take the Lord's Supper, here's what you're saying. 
Jesus, you are absolutely necessary. And Jesus, you are absolutely good enough. If you have never said that before and you want to say that now, you can do that where you're at. We have people over here. We have Derek and we have Jason. I can guarantee you that they would love to talk with you today. I am telling you, Jesus is absolutely necessary and he is absolutely good enough. For those of you who have or after you've, you've told that to God, I'd ask you to come and get the bread and get the wine or get the juice and then go back to, your, to where you're sitting and we'll all share together.